0: Welcome to this week's Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. Joe Hagen is here with me, of course. Hi, Joe.
1: Hi, I'm here. Present.
0: I, I, I take roll call in a way mm-hmm. that feels just right for this week's episode, because we are talking about what everyone, I think, is also talking about at this present moment, and that is what the hell is going to happen come September when we try and reopen schools. I, I actually you and I were talking before we pressed record and you very smartly said, should we be recording this? Because we were mid-rant about whether or not it's safe to open schools for students, for teachers, for parents. And my my overarching thought about all this is someone who doesn't have kids, and I'm i wanna pick your brain a lot more because you have Little ones who I have need them. To be I have, yeah. <laughs> educated.
1: I'm going to get roped into Trump's crazy plan.
0: Well, you're halfway there. We're all halfway there. I don't know what the answer is because you can't have a full economy if kids aren't in school. You can't have parents who are also serving as teachers or homeroom monitors or uh, Zoom czars. You, you can't have that and have a full-time job. But you also are in a position where teachers are going to be the new frontline workers. There are the new healthcare professionals as we head into the fall. And, you know, not all teachers are 24-year-olds who are less at risk. And we also know that the virus is infecting younger people and, and there's no telling about how this could impact kids in the long run. So anyway, I don't know what the answer is, but today... We're getting closer to at least finding out what is at the root of these decisions and and talking to one of the real decision makers here. But but before we get into the interview, I want to pick your brain, Joe, as someone who is uh, who has been running his own little schoolhouse for the last five months and is right. thinking about um, your kids going back to school in September. Where do you fall?
1: Yeah, I I well. My own school district has not made any decision yet, because everybody's waiting to see mm. what phase we're at. Right? They they're taking their marching orders from the governor in this case mm-hmm. of New York, Andrew Cuomo. And uh, but then there's the parent side of the equation, thinking: Do I really want to send my kids into a building with a bunch of other kids and just automatically, you know, be exposed to the least careful person? Sure. Right? The person who who has not been wearing a mask of whom there are probably totally. lots, you know, we know it doesn't even matter what political persuasion you are. I mean, you can go out in l a or New York or out into Texas and um, Arizona, and you're gonna see there's just large chunks of people who just are oblivious to this whole thing for all whatever rationale they have. So then suddenly, I send my three kids, and what I was telling you, uh, beforehand was that uh, there hasn't been a school season in which I haven't gotten a cold mm. from my kids. This is just part of being a parent. Is they go out in their little petri dishes and they collect all the horrible germy, squirmy stuff that's out on the schoolyard, bring it home and give it to you. So this is a takes that whole thing to a new level. And you know, kids, can they socially distance? Are they going to keep their masks on? I mean, come on, let's get real. If their parents aren't doing it. So you know, then there is the economic thing. I mean, I, I mean, there are some people who have the, um, you know, privilege to be able to uh, work from home and keep their kids at a distance and keep them on a computer while they do their thing. But there's other people that can't get to work at all if their kids are at home, and there and a lot of that, the pressure, the economic pressure, is falling on, you know what we've called the working class. And a lot of those people are working at school as school bus drivers, custodians, cafeteria workers. Those people don't have the resources necessarily to be sick for six months. Uh, In any case, six months is not how that, not six months, but, but you know what I mean? So uh, it's, I think um, it's a conundrum. There's no getting around it. This whole thing has been one big conundrum, Uh, but I think it's too soon. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, look at the spikes. Look at the spikes and the numbers. There it's seems crazy. to be
0: a general approach, obviously, uh, from the administration of downplaying the risks, or at least just not rising to the the occasion. But I think that um, these are problems. The way you're going to solve this and set up schools, if if schools are going to be open, they need to be completely safe spaces for teachers and for children. And the the way to do that is proper distancing, installing new ventilation systems. Uh, Maybe you have glass partitions between teachers and their classmates. And all these things take time. All these things take money, especially, I mean, one of the the major proposals is that there's sort of going to be this hybrid situation, right, where your kids are in school two days a week or three Mm -hmm. days a week or one day a week, whatever it is. And if that's the case, that's not your typical lesson plan for September. So teachers need to be completely overhauling how they're going to be teaching the normal things to your kids in the fall, how tests are administered, how homework is collected. All of those things take a lot of time to plan for. And it feels like we've just squandered the last five months because there's been absolutely no federal direction to the schools, to the governors, to the teachers. And... This is just a complete and utter disaster that I think we'll see the ramifications for for years to come. Um, and and I keep thinking about every parent I talk to is talking about kids need to be in school because they need to socialize with other kids and they need to interact with other kids. And I totally agree with that, but they're not going to be interacting right. normally. They're not if. if if you are following public health guidelines, it's not normal social interaction at school to be six feet apart and in a mask with somebody. And so is it better to have them no. in school with this weird kind of social interaction and possibly then exposing them? Or is it better to just keep everybody on? I don't know the answer to that. But I talked to someone who, who seems to know more about this and be thinking about this in a much closer way um than than we are we got to talking to uh randy weingarten who is the head of the american teachers um, organization and it is just a fascinating fascinating conversation about you know she represents 1.7 million people who work in schools around the country from um anyone who works in a school to a teacher in an elementary school to people who work at universities and her perspective was fascinating to me. The kinds of things that she is weighing as she's making these decisions and talking to her members really are, are eye-opening to me. And uh, one thing that she said that, that really stuck to me is how the government has uh, released its funding and who they've um, given money to over the course of this and who they haven't given money to. All the problems that need to be solved in schools are expensive, They require a lot of federal funding. And yet the government has given loans to people like Kanye West for his sneaker line and uh, billionaire developers in the Hamptons. And it seems like that money could be much better spent installing proper ventilation systems in our schools' cafeterias. Right, Joe?
1: Well, yeah, and schools are you know, notoriously underfunded all over the country mm. and uh, teachers complaining about them having to buy their own materials. You know, you hear this all the time. And, and, and I know from my own experience that all the parents are expected to actually send in boxes of tissue and, yes, you know, hand sanitizer with their kids because the schools can't afford it. Right. So suddenly, you know, every, we're, we're, we're also expected to help prop this up. In any event, I can't wait to hear this interview because, uh, I'm as eager to know what's going to happen next as anybody in this country. So let's listen.
0: I am thrilled to have Randy Weingarten with us today. Randy is the president of the American Federation of Teachers, which represents the 1.7 million members made up of teachers of school and school-related personnel, higher education faculty and staff, nurses and other healthcare professionals, local, state, and federal government employees, and early childhood educators. I don't think that there's a more pressing topic than what is going to happen in September. Randy, first of all, welcome. And second of all, I have to start out with the trillion dollar question. And that is, are kids going to be able to go to school safely in September?
2: They should be able to go to school safely in September if people follow the guidelines of the CDC and make this about public health and students and teacher safety, Mm. not about politics. Um, and you know, and and you know, it's 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 going to be different in different places. Um, but the um, watching Trump make it political um, and refuse to actually negotiate with the Senate Dems and Nancy Pelosi, what's needed to fund this, um, makes me less and less.
0: So, so walk me through what is going on at this present moment and why your life has been so incredibly crazy over the last few months, but particularly in the last few days and hours.
2: So let me just say, let me just start with, um, this, if I may, Emily, there's, let me start with, um, that there's a, we are in the middle of a pandemic, uh, We seem to be surging um, in some places in the country because those places refuse to follow the basic science. The places that followed the science and the safety rules, like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Europe, we're seeing a real decrease in cases the places that decided that um, politics was more important or some weird cultural war was more important than keeping people safe are seeing surges. So within that lens, one actually has to operate a school teacher as a parent with what is in the best interest of kids. And, you know that kids in the last three to six months have really um, been hurt by the social isolation and by the engagement or the the lack of engagement and all these crises that are around them, whether it's COVID, whether it's an economic crisis, or whether it's this racial reckoning and and really um, staring racism in the face. And all of this, particularly in light of not being able to talk to each other and being with their friends has had a huge impact on kids because of that. And because teachers know that we at the AFT have been working on trying to figure out how to safely reopen since April. And, and, and there's five pillars to it that frankly haven't changed since April. So I, I give you at the beginning of the show yeah, it, it should be if we follow these safeguards and guardrails, but, you know, with every passing day, we're not following them. So these are the guardrails, and, 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 and it's pretty simple. Number one, cases in a community have to be going down, not up, so that you have as little community spread as possible. Number two, the public health. Um, And government has to have a testing, tracing, and isolation infrastructure so that if you have a spike, it can be contained. So a spike doesn't become a surge like what's happening in Florida or Texas or Arizona right now. Number three is where the rubber hits the road in schools. And that is what we've learned is that if you have the physical distancing of six feet and if you have kids and teachers wearing masks, you do proper ventilation and proper cleaning, then you're going to be able to have kids in schools with teachers. We've learned that from what happened in terms of child care for essential workers in March and April in, in New York and New Jersey where people were safe and where, people, um, and where kids and teachers both were safe in the midst of you know, the, the most anxious circumstances there could be. Then you marry. Then the last two things are obviously there's we have resources for well-being and we have to have resource instruction because this is going to be a year not like no other. So if you think about that, and then you add in how do we get teachers and parents together talking about what the schedule should look like and and how they're comfortable, and then the last issue is that has to be funded. So what does this really look like in plain English? It basically means you've got 50% capacity in schools at any particular time, unless all of a sudden somebody's going to find lots of new space to use and it's going to double the number of teachers. But you basically have 50% capacity, and, um, and, 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 and you wrap services like well-being and nurses and guidance counselors around schools, And then you spend a bunch of time thinking about what you do in direct instruction and what you do in remote instruction, because when you have 50% capacity, you're going to have to have a hybrid model. So that's what most states are thinking about, how to have a hybrid model, how the people who are at risk stay home or opt to stay home, how um, kids, early childhood kids, have more instructional time than the older kids. Mm. Um, and, and what you can do in remote instruction that's, that's um, helpful and what you need to do reinforcing in group, you know, in-person instruction.
0: I think that all of this sounds so thoughtful and so hard to me. And I I just have a bunch of practical questions for you. And I think my first practical question is if you're operating school at 50% capacity and you have this hybrid model, which really does seem like the only – way to do this in a way that is, is responsible for public health. It's just so hard for me to square how a family can actually have its parents get back to work when kids are not in school full time. I, I it, it is crazy to me that people are not talking more about schools. And I think you're starting to hear more and more of it as we approach September. But you can't have a full economy if you don't have kids in school full-time because parents can't work. And if parents can't work, then you you can't get back to our economy as usual. And so I'm just wondering how in your mind this plays out for all families across the country.
2: So uh, it is a really, look, it's a really vexing question. And that's why I'm pretty shocked that um, it was only us and, frankly, we, we were the first group out with a plan in April. The CDC came out with a plan. Now, a few weeks before school is starting in, in, in the fall, you know, it, there's a, a sense of, oh, my God, this is what we need to do. So the real question is, what's the priorities? Or if kids are a priority, um, then, you know, then businesses and others are going to have to deal with what we need to do with kids. But the second thing is, we could actually have side by side with schooling um, lots of different childcare, which is what we did um, in the most um, intense periods of time in places like New York and New Jersey for essential workers. Mm. And there could be childcare set up within businesses um, and we know how to do that as well. And that is also part of what the Senate Democrats put forward last week in terms of how to fund it. But, you know, the question is, are schools for kids to learn or are schools child care and schools are for kids to learn? And the more what I, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, we've spent millions of dollars on ads right now trying to get the president and the Republicans in the Senate to wake up to the responsibilities of how to fund this. And we've tried to get Betsy DeVos and Alex Azar and all these other people in the Trump administration to wake up to their responsibilities for how to make this happen. They have basically um, said nothing, given no guidance. And so now you have this terrible situation where parents are saying, oh, my God, what do we do? And teachers are saying, oh, my God, what do we do? And, And there is a lack of responsibility um, from the administration on all of this stuff. Yes, you need to reopen schools in order to reopen the economy, but we're, we need to reopen schools safely for um, children and for staff. And the ramifications of not reopening schools safely for either of them is what if the pediatricians are wrong? What if the WHO is wrong? You know, Trump until this moment, decided that the WHO didn't know what they were talking about sure. until it was convenient for him. Sure. What if they are wrong. And what if kids actually are, as the Swiss study suggested, asymptomatic carriers of the disease and what happens if we don't know that until it's too late. Mm. And so you're going to see, you're going to, we don't, this is why the difference between the six feet and three feet are so important. We know that six feet works, to keep people safe. We know mass work to keep people safe. So let's actually have businesses accommodate parents as opposed to parents trying to figure out how they turn themselves into a pretzel. I, I give the teachers in the United States a lot of credit. We we just polled them, our members, and they said to us, seventy six percent of them said if we can get these safeguards in there they wanna. They wanna teach kids. They mm. wanna teach kids, not for Donald Trump's political purposes. They wanna teach kids because they know kids have lost out, and that with these three crises of an economic crisis, a COVID crisis, and a racial crisis, they know our kids need them. So, but but last thing I'll say is the ramifications are, if if we don't do this, if you're a school teacher who's in your sixties then what do you decide to do? You're supposed to get a reasonable accommodation if, you know, if, if the situation is, is dangerous under the Americans for Disabilities Act. Think about how many teachers will then either ask for a reasonable accommodation to teach remote or even worse, will opt out and retire early. Mm. Think about the brain drain that we're going to have if we don't try to figure out how to accommodate everybody. So, so so, this is why we started this planning in April, and my union has been planning all over, but we kept saying you have to get the safety issues intact. It sounds silly, but this issue about physical distancing, it's going to change the logistics everywhere. And I would actually say to businesses, you've got to accommodate your employees. We are trying the best we can with with in a situation that's unprecedented and and where you're seeing spikes all over the place to say even with all of this even absent a vaccine we want to teach kids in person we know how important it is this is inside the hive
0: well, one of the things I think we've heard the most is parents everywhere have a newfound appreciation for what teachers do. And parents who have been stuck at home trying to get their kids on Zoom schools or trying themselves to teach their children for the first time really understand just how hard it is to do the jobs that your members do for for very little pay every single day, every single year. And what I'm now thinking about is as you laid out so clearly is you have to put a lot of protective measures in place. You have to put a lot of resources and time into thinking about how new learning works. You have to think about the ventilation systems in school, the distancing in schools, the proper PPE to keep desks and cafeterias and um, recess rooms clean. Schools are already running on such thin margins. There is such a shortfall of funding in a normal school year. Now you're adding all of these other expenses on top of that. How are you going to pay for all of the things that you need to do in order to get kids back into school, even at at half capacity?
2: So um, we put a back of the envelope um, sense of how much this was going to cost, because we think it's going to cost 20% more. So remember, because of the forced pause in the economy... Um, because Donald Trump downplayed the virus and didn't do the kind of things that needed to happen to mitigate in January and February. There was a forced forced pause in so many places. It cratered state revenues. So states all across the country are saying that absent a federal package, they're going to have 20 percent. They're going to have budget cuts of 20 percent. We think that it's gonna cost 20% more to open schools in this way, not 20% less. So mm. um, that's why many of my leaders and myself think that if we don't get that money, we're all gonna be on remote anyway, because how do you actually have the money to have the, um, the bus routes um, with 20% less funding? Mm. How do you have the teachers with 20% less funding? How do you um, pay for the cleaning supplies? How do you pay for the PPE? Masks? All of, you know, every mask for every kid and every teacher basically these days costs about a dollar a mask. And, you know, it shouldn't cost that much, but, you know, this is we're in a capitalist society. So the, the amount of money that all of this is going to cost is a pretty penny. And so we've been pushing very hard for what Nancy Pelosi put together as the heroes package because it had a trillion dollars it had a lot of important stuff for that addressed inequality that addressed you know food insecurity that address you know OSHA standards but it had a trillion dollars in there for the um, to to compensate for the cratering of revenues that states and localities and schools have had hmm. um, and the Senate the Senate Democrats said after they've gotten our studies and others that they that 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 money for schools should go up from about 100 billion to about you know um basically for k-12 175 billion and for higher ed about 135 billion and for child care about 75 billion so patty murray and chuck schumer put together what i believe is a very accurate sense of what it's gonna cost for us to do all of these things. And, and so the question I have is, and, and I don't begrudge it, I think we had to do those COVID packages. I do think you had to shore up the airline industry and the cruise industry, and I'm not sure you had to show, shore up um, Kanye West's you know, work, but you know, so You mean the, the, the Yeezys and are so, not essential? Yeah, I would say that I, you know, with all respect, I kind of think kids are more essential than easy. Easies.
0: You, hear, but, you heard you it know, here first. I'm,
2: you know, but hey, maybe I'm a cultural neophyte. <laughs> 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 but, 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 having, but, but, but look, I, I thought the PPP program was essential. But how can you have, you know, billions of dollars to shore up industry that you know, um, in the first two months of COVID, and not spend the three hundred billion that is needed for us to have young people not lose their futures, and and it just and so you know we've been doing lots of ads bombarding the Republican senators, but think about how wrongheaded the priorities are. That, that we have to beg for this. And it's July already. And this money needed to be used for planning in April
0: and May. It's maddening. It's maddening to think about how much time this administration and the people in Washington have spent um, doing nothing and, and staring a crisis in the face and sort of throwing up their hands. And, and of course, this is unprecedented. This is Hopefully, once in a generation that that we are dealing with these kinds of things and, and making decisions blindly, but that's what leadership is. That that is why. And now
2: trying. And now, after they've done nothing for months, like we, uh, like our first press conference on COVID was February second. We wrote letters to DeVos and to Azar to get us the resources earlier on. We have done, you know, um, day after day after day, lobbied the Senate Republicans to pass the heroes. After all of that, after doing nothing on all of that, then they rush, because Joe Biden spoke at an NEA convention last, last week, they rush to try to pit parents against teachers when it is businesses that should be working with us to actually make sure we can reopen schools at all to actually reopen society. It's just, it is so wrong-headed what Trump and Voss are doing. And what Florida is doing is even more wrong-headed. Like, how the heck do you actually think you're going to reopen schools five days in a row for every single student when you are having a surge of COVID and it violates every public health precept that we know of in terms of how to contain the virus and how to contain the spread.
0: Well, it's interesting because what we're seeing in Florida is obviously a direct reaction to policies that they put in place or, or policies that they didn't put in place about a month ago. And I think the first pillar that you mentioned in your plan is that in order for schools to reopen fully in the fall, there has to be a 14-day decline, right? That feels like, I can't imagine that 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 continues to happen in states like Florida and in other states that are starting now to reopen. It scares me because we're still in the first wave of this, and every public health expert has said since day one of this that there is going to be another greater resurgence in the fall and in the winter.
2: So this is why, Emily, this and and look, we may have to there may have to be some rethinking about all of these things. But this is why the if you if you look, for example, at New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, states that operated together to try to not just um, plateau the spread, but really try to um, reduce it. Um, you see that they are still having a decrease in cases, and that they're trying to reopen slowly, um, to you know, in 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 a way that maintains that. But that's why this this infrastructure of testing and tracing and isolation becomes so important, because nobody, you know, because you you know that there's going to be some outbreaks, but you. Have, to try to avert the outbreaks from becoming surges like what happened in in Florida and what's happening in Texas and in Arizona. But but the political reaction, I mean the the, the worst thing that Trump has done here is he has made a public health crisis into a political culture war. Hmm. And so it's not just the fact that 40% of the deaths are people in nursing homes. It's like Trump actually went after or actually didn't care about the group of voters that voted most religiously for him—the yes. elderly.
0: It's just hard to think of a, a more disastrous political decision, and and one that is more devoid of empathy. I, I just I struggle right. to think of something that uh, makes less sense to me and is full of of as little heart as that policy was. I have to ask you about higher education. So
2: let me just say. Oh yeah. Let please. me just say one last thing for you is that if. So if you have, for example, schools that are reopening in, um, in Florida where you're seeing a huge amount of community spread, then you have to be even more religious about the public health tools that prevent a virus from spreading in schools. So, so, if, if, so if there's less and less community spread, so those are the places where you start thinking about how you relax. You know the the public health tools, but when you have more community spread, like Florida or like Texas, then you have to be really religious about the six feet and the mask and the cleaning and isolation. Mm. Totally,
0: totally. Because I...
2: that, you know, that's how you stop the spread of a virus. That's why I'm saying, if people actually understood the science, if the science was out there and generally understood as to the why. We'd be in a different situation, and that's presidential leadership. If, if, if the president is saying something, if Fauci and the president are saying something that's dissonant to one another, then you know we're in trouble.
0: And well, the, the problem that we've seen in the last few weeks is that Dr. Fauci has disappeared from public life as we knew him in the first few months of this pandemic, and it seems like that is not an accident.
2: This is Inside the Hive.
0: I want to pick your brain about higher education. So we saw earlier this week that Harvard announced that all of its schooling will be done online. Princeton announced that they're going to do some sort of um, hybrid approach where freshmen and juniors will be on campus one semester and, and sophomores and seniors another. And tuition is full freight. So even if you're learning online, they're they're charging the same amount as if you would be on campus I'm wondering your take on that and if you would would pay full freight for an online education like that.
2: Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've had this conversation in my family. My niece is at University of Maryland, Mm. and we were having a debate about this. And her parents, um, you know, talked about, you know, how, why would they do that? And you can see that a lot of parents will make the decision that, they that they won't and that they can't now harvard can afford a lot of people opting out of you know of of paying in that kind of way but this is this goes back to why free college is so important and why college just like high school you know or any of the post-secondary opportunities you know these are absolute requirements for kids to succeed in the future, some post-secondary education, whether it be, you know, a career, whether it be an apprenticeship program or whether it be college. And and so we need to, this is part of the reimagining that we need to rethink, um, you know, how we afford higher education or how we pay for higher education, how we make it a public good. and And so... I don't think that these schools are making the wrong choices. I think that, that, that everybody is focusing on what's going to happen because of community spread, what's going to happen to make sure that you keep, you know, students and, and, and staff safe. But lots of people were trying to open because it was also really important for the local communities. And, um, and I think that this, so, so I'm not answering your question directly. I think a lot of people are not going to go to – a lot of kids are going to opt out of going um, back to school um, in this, you know, um, or, 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 you know, taking classes remotely um, this year. And I think that's going to cause a lot of universities, particularly state universities, um, a lot of pain. I think a lot of community colleges are going to see their – um, uh, the number of kids that, that are taking courses um, increase, um, and, and they're going to spend some time thinking about, you know, how they, um, how they use that in the future to, you know, shore up a
0: local community college. What did you advise your niece?
2: I just, I smiled <laughs> and I basically said, what do you get out of college? What's important for college? And what was interesting is that the community, you know, she wants to go back. And thus far, Marilyn is, is letting kids go back. That may change. But for her, the community, um, re- and for her, and I think that this is uh, very, uh, this is something consistent with lots of kids, the community experience, the college experience, the building relationships, the not being in isolation, all of that is really important. And, and so so um, I think it's still up in the air what she's going to do this year, even though I know she very
0: much wants to continue.
2: Mm. This is Inside the Hive.
0: My last question for you touches on the community that you're talking about, and it touches on what you said a little bit ago about uh, having the ability to reimagine what schools look like after this. I think if if there's one silver lining to anything that we're going through right now in all aspects of our lives is that we're all having a forced moment of reflection and a little bit of a forced pause to think about the things that weren't working, that weren't serving us, that weren't serving our communities, our states, our children, our bosses. And as you take a, a step back and look at that, what do the schools of the future do differently than the schools of our past and and particularly in this moment of real racial reckoning, of real um, a moment to think about inequality in our system, I keep thinking about kids who rely on schools for lunches, um, kids, kids who need special education classes, kids who whose families really can't go by without them being, uh, in in school for eight hours a day, and I'm wondering how that factors into what you're thinking about as we go forward.
2: So I, um, so we spent I spent a lot of time thinking about the question you just asked, which is this: what what this what the uh, trio of crises have made clear is just how important brick-and-mortar schooling is as central to our democracy, as central to our communities, and as central to being a ladder of opportunity that, um, that helps confront um, racism and confront inequality and confront all of the other ways that inequity shows itself, uh, shows itself to be. That, that, and that if we think about schooling as how do we meet the needs of the whole child, um, how do we meet well-being needs, how do we engage kids, how do we recreate art, and music, and physical education, all of that is important to creating hope, creating knowledge, and empowering them the other thing that has been for me, and it's it's hard to find a silver lining because 200,000 of our members um, have been, you know, are in healthcare and have been in hospitals every single day of this and have really risked their lives, um, and so it's been hard to to watch that level of heroics and that level of pain and see a silver lining, but there is this sense that of gratitude to the feeders, to the caretakers, to the engagers, to the protectors, all of whom are basically everyday Americans doing the jobs that make a difference in the lives of others. And they didn't miss a beat trying to figure out how to do this in this unprecedented pandemic. So the heart, what I get from this crisis is that the heart of America is still there, but we need to meet the moment where the leader who actually meets who we are as a people. And mm-hmm. that with that, and with a sense of government is important, a sense that a second new deal, you know, whether, you know, is, is, is in the making right now to really, Confront racism, to really confront inequality, to really uh, make America the place where dreamers and strivers and strugglers can all aspire to great things. That would be um, meeting our better angels, as opposed to the division and the um, tipping against the competence that we have seen in the leadership right now.
0: Well, that is tremendous to think about, tremendous to hear, and I thank you for your leadership as we sail through completely unprecedented times and as you work through some of the most important issues that we will face in the coming months. I really, really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. Thank you for, um, thank you for listening. Thank you.
0: Thank you to my guest, Randy Weingarten, and of course to Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thank you to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We'll see you next week.